Today is part one in our February series entitled Unfulfilled Expectations. The definition of expectation is the act or state of looking forward or anticipating. Something expected. A thing looked forward to. The definition of unfulfilled is unmet, not carried out, not having reached a point, not converted into reality. Is there an unmet need in your life? Or has a dream or goal not been reached after months, even years of hard work and and prayer? Is your life moving in a different direction than you had planned? You have this image in your mind of the perfect family, the perfect career uh, or, or lifestyle, but what you have is nothing like you imagined. Your dreams are shattered. You've been praying, trusting in the promises of God, expecting God to do something. But there seems to be no answer. You don't sense his presence. Nothing changes. Or maybe the outcome wasn't what you were hoping for. You're confused. You're disappointed. You're hurting. You're battling doubt. Life is full, full of unfulfilled expectations. Church, I want to encourage us in this series, beginning today, and something very, very important to to keep in mind and to be on guard and, and to watch out for. Unfulfilled expectations can become Satan's foothold in your life and in my life. And what do I mean by foothold, place? Place. The apostle Paul instructs the church in in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The Greek word translated place means any portion or space marked off an inhabited place, opportunity, power, occasion for acting, license. On the screen above is a definition of foothold, a place of opportunity for Satan to work in our lives. How does Satan get a foothold in your life, in my life? Well, we see in Ephesians that one example is anger. Paul said, be angry and do not sin. And so one example is the emotion of of anger that turns into sin. But it could be any negative emotion. If you fill your life with worry because of an unfulfilled expectation... He can gain a foothold in your life. If you fill your life with resentment because of an unfulfilled expectation, he can gain a foothold in your life. Church, any negative emotion that festers in your heart can give Satan the opportunity to establish a foothold in your life and in my life as well. And something we'll talk more about during this series are the dangers of unhealthy expectations we place on people Unhealthy expectations that we place on relationships, 
unhealthy expectations that we place on ourselves and even on God. We do that. Pat's done that. We will also talk about healthy expectations. There are expectations God wants us to have. In fact, Jesus told us to expect his return. That's a healthy expectation. How many are expecting Christ's return? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Are you expecting the return of Christ? That's a healthy expectation we all should have as followers of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Be expectant. The expectation of Christ's second coming is a healthy and biblical expectation. The Apostle Paul talks about expectations in Romans chapter 8. and In verse 19, he writes, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23 says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting, expecting the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. The expectation of the redemption of our physical body is a healthy and biblical expectation. You know, these aches and pains, the sickness that we experience. There's a lot of sickness, a lot of sickness in our church. This flu has really grabbed a lot of people, young and and old, and everyone in in the middle. Father, we just pray right now for our church family. There's a lot of sickness, this flu. Father, we just pray in the healing name of Jesus that you would minister to each one. In Jesus' name, I I heard of Debbie Perticone with these um, incredible back spasms and pain in in her back. We ask, Lord, that you would touch her in Jesus' name today. In Jesus' name today. One day, there's going to be the redemption of our physical body. Our soul has already been redeemed. Amen? We are his. But we're still in this earthly tent. And Paul says, it's decaying. This earthly house, it's falling apart. But one day, it's going to be redeemed. One day, this earthly body... Is going to be replaced with our glorified, redeemed body. Isn't that going to be glorious, church? Oh, we're so blessed of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Wow. Expectation. There's a better tomorrow than today. Paul says, we were saved in this hope. God's people are not hopeless. We're hopeful. But when we have unhealthy expectations, and these unhealthy expectations go unfulfilled, they produce negative emotions that can give Satan a foothold, a foothold that has the potential to become disruptive and destructive. 
And church, if we're not careful, a foothold can become a stronghold. A stronghold is a place of opportunity, excuse me, a foothold is a place of opportunity for Satan to work. A stronghold is a controlling influence in our lives. The Apostle Paul talks about pulling down strongholds in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. In verse 4, he writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. A stronghold is a controlling influence in our lives. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. He identifies strongholds in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as arguments. We see this in verse 5, which are philosophies, reasonings, and schemes of the devil. These inward arguments. They're not outward arguments. They're not flesh and blood arguments. They're emotional arguments. They're, they're mind arguments. They're inward arguments. These inward arguments first take place within our hearts, within our minds. They exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. These arguments begin inward. And they happen in our thought life. They strongly influence our thinking, our emotions. They have to do with anything proud, anything man-centered, woman-centered, self-confident. Then these arguments manifest outwardly in our attitudes and actions towards others. Relationships we're in, jobs that we work, neighbors that we have. The Apostle Paul says, bring every thought to the obedience of Christ in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You see, if we give Satan control of one little part of, of our life, of your life, it's a foothold. He will soon try to take over the whole thing. That's a stronghold. The Apostle Paul says the best way to deal with these negative emotions is immediately. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Back in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. There's not an option. Don't go to bed. With anger that has turned into sin. In your heart towards someone. Make the choice to deal with it right away. You see church if you don't. The negative thoughts and emotions produced from unfulfilled expectations. Will deal with you. And they're disruptive in their dealing. Indestructive. Here are three important helps, helps that will bring your negative thoughts and emotions produced from unfulfilled expectations under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's three that I'm going to briefly share with you this morning. There's a place on your outline. Fill in the blanks. Number one, the Holy Spirit. 
He is the spirit of truth. He is your personal helper. I'm so grateful for the grace of God. He's provided me a personal helper from heaven, the third person of the Godhead, to live my life for him. Apart from the helper, the Holy Spirit, I am, it's impossible. I cannot live my life for Jesus Christ. Apart from the work, the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ will not be the, the professed Lord of my life. I will be my own Lord. Number two, the word of God. In John 17, 17, Jesus said, your word is truth. How do we know Satan's lies? How do we know the counterfeit? We need to know the truth. We need to know what's real. And that's why the word of God is essential. So essential. Holy Spirit, he's our teacher. He leads us and guides us in the truth. And then thirdly, prayer. Prayer, as we've been encouraged and learning in the month, the past month, the month of January, it's hard to believe we're in February already. Blink your eyes, it's February. Maybe I'll blink twice and we'll be in April. We're going to Florida in April. Gonna blink, blink, blink. Prayer. Prayer aligns us with God's truth in God's will. This brings us, church, this brings us to our main scripture text today. John, cha- uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Gracious Father in heaven, oh, I'm so grateful for your grace. My helper, the Holy Spirit. For your word. Oh, for Jesus, our Savior. Coming King. I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak, that you would exalt yourself through the preaching of your word, that you would be seen, Pat would be unseen. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent him to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Let me give you the background here. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and forerunner. His job as forerunner was to prepare the way for Jesus. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is in prison, a dungeon. He's in prison for confronting Herod's sin of adultery. That's what Old Testament prophets do. They speak on God's behalf. They call sin by its name. They call sin out. They call people to repentance. John's job lands him in Herod's dungeon. The will of God is not always the safest place, as I've been sharing. It can be a very dangerous place, but it's the most rewarding place. Now, I've shared this over the last few weeks. It's really been stirring in my heart, in my spirit, because there is a false gospel being preached. 
Come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. No, come to Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. It's a gospel of of health and wealth. No pain, all gain. That's just false. Just read Romans 8. It's a lie. Yes. Grace is free, but to run in the race will cost you. Paul says we're running a race. God's grace is free, but to run in the race will cost you. Now, John had a bunch of disciples. A disciple is a student, a learner. Over time, the student becomes more and more like their teacher. They think more like their teacher. They live and act more like their teacher. As a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is our teacher. We are his student. Over time, we become more and more like Jesus in our character and in our conduct. In our attitude, our inward attitude, in our outward action, in relationships. Now, we see in our text that John's disciples visit him in prison and tell him all that Jesus is doing. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. Now, you would think John would be really, really excited. Like this, like this is incredible. Wow, but that wasn't his response. In verse 20, he calls over two of his disciples and he instructed them to go to Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, this is a big deal. This is John the Baptist questioning whether Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, anointed one sent by God to rescue his people, the Jews. He first met Jesus when he was still in his mother's womb and Jesus was still in Mary's womb. Luke chapter one, verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, speaking of John the Baptist, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the first occasion that John the Baptist met the coming one, the Messiah. And he leaped. He leaped in his mother's womb. He's Jesus' cousin. He's the forerunner of Jesus. He was called by God to prepare the way for Jesus. In fact, when John was baptizing new disciples, he sees Jesus coming towards him. He publicly announces to the crowds of people watching him baptizing new converts. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who's coming, behold, here he comes. Behold the Lamb. Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, referring to Jesus, tells the crowd he's not worthy to unloose Jesus' sandals in, in verse 27 of, of John chapter 1. Moreover, John baptized Jesus. He had the awesome privilege of of baptizing Jesus. He was there, and as Jesus prayed, John witnessed heaven open, the Holy Spirit descending 
in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus. He witnessed firsthand. He heard the voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 3 verse 22. But here in our main scripture text, there seems to be a crisis of faith. There's a sense of doubt in John's voice regarding who Jesus is. Is he the coming one spoken by the prophets? Should John be looking for someone else? Could it be that John had unfulfilled expectations? He, along with all the Jewish people, were waiting, expecting a political and military leader who would crush their enemies and free them from Roman oppression. And possibly in John's mind, Jesus didn't fit the bill. He was born in a stable. Stinky animals, flies all around. To poor parents on top of it. But Jesus was everything spoken by the Old Testament prophets down to the smallest detail. In fact, Paul right into the church in Corinth. He writes in his second letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God in him, in Christ are yes and in him Christ, amen, to the glory of God through us. Down to the smallest detail. Maybe John was wondering, hey, Jesus, what about me? Jesus, don't forget me. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? You're going around healing the sick. You're going around raising the dead. Jesus, what about me? I'm in this dungeon, this dark place. I'm in the center of your will. Hey, Jesus, I'm obeying you. I'm doing everything I've been, I've been given to do. And Jesus, I'm walking in obedience. Jesus, why am, I in, why am I in this dark dungeon? Why am I suffering like I'm suffering? I'm your cousin. Jesus, I'm your cousin. I prepared the way for your coming. I baptized you. Help me get out of this dungeon. Days passed. Weeks went by. And John was left wondering, where's Jesus when you really need him? You see, John knew from scripture that he who who gave the blind sight made the lame walk and preach good news to the poor could surely open the prison to those who are bound as prophesied in Isaiah 61.1. But Jesus didn't do that for John. Have you ever felt or thought, where's Jesus when you really need him? Where are you, Jesus? I really need you. And so John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? That's exactly what happens to us. When our unfulfilled expectations of Jesus collide with our personal pain and suffering, doubt begins to form. And trust me, Satan will take advantage of this opportunity. 
He will tell you lies about God. That's why the Holy Spirit, the word of God in prayer is so, so essential and critical. He will tell you lies about God. If God really loves you, he would have answered your prayers. He would have protected you from getting hurt in that relationship. If he really loves you, he would have healed your loved one. He would have healed you. You would have received a promotion at work. He will try and influence you to question God's goodness in your life, God's truth. This has always been Satan's strategy. It's the strategy he used in the very beginning with Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said, has God indeed said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He's planting a seed of, of doubt in Eve's mind, causing her to question what God really said. Satan targets your mind, church. His weapons are lies. There's no truth in him. His purpose is to make you and me ignorant of God's will. He'll use your personal pain and disappointments. He'll use my personal pain and disappointments, your unfulfilled expectations and my unfulfilled expectations. Satan uses it all. To disrupt and to be destructive. Church, Satan uses your personal pain to cause you to doubt your faith, what you believe about God, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, our helper. While God uses, God uses our pain to deepen our faith. Satan uses Pain to cause you and me to doubt our faith. God uses our pain to deepen our faith. If Satan can get you to believe a lie, question God's word and doubt God's goodness, then he can begin to work in your life to lead you astray into a life of self-centeredness in sin and that's a miserable miserable lonely life church hear this today please instead of living as a victor in jesus christ instead of living as a victor in christ you live as a victim in crisis Filled with negative emotions 24-7, given a foothold placed to Satan that if not dealt with immediately can lead to a stronghold, a place that he controls in your life. So what does Jesus do in response to John's disciples' question? Are you the coming one or do we look for another Luke chapter 7 verse 21 tells us in that very hour he Jesus cured many of infirmities afflictions and evil spirit to many blind he gave sight verse 22 Jesus answered and said to them to John's disciples go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised the poor have the gospel preached to them 
You see, these miracles reveal Jesus as the promised one. These miracles reveal Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one of God. Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, speaks about Jesus being the anointed one, the Messiah. John was expecting a political and military kingdom, but the kingdom of God Jesus came to establish was there in power because God was present. Jesus is God in the flesh, so all of heaven's power was present. To overcome man's greatest enemy, the Jews' greatest enemy, your greatest enemy, the power and enemy of sin that separates us from a holy God. This is glorious stuff. Jesus never once said to John, how dare you question me? What's wrong with you, John? Jesus didn't rebuke John for doubting. God never rebukes anyone who comes to him with sincere questions and and honest doubt. How many of us have come to God with sincere questions and, and honest doubt? He doesn't rebuke. He welcomes us. That's grace, church. Isn't that You know, be it Job or Abraham, Moses, or even Thomas, who gets such a bad rap, doubting Thomas. He gets such a bad rap. As you go through the Bible, you'll never see a question or rebuke if their questions are sincere. And John's was. John thinks based on his own expectations of Jesus that Jesus should be doing something that he's not doing. We're no different than John, are we? But Jesus doesn't rebuke John. Instead, he he told John's disciples to tell John what they see and hear. Hurting people healed, dead people raised, and poor people treasured through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus doesn't explain himself to John. Jesus reveals himself to John. This was the real power of the Messiah. God's anointed one in action. The blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman authority. He came to step into the lives of messy, broken, hurting, lonely, lost, sinful people, people in need of the Savior, not a Savior, but the Savior. Can we say the Savior? There's only one Savior. There's only one way to God, our Father in heaven, who is holy. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. Amen? I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Most of these miracles fulfill some promise found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, promised some 700 years before Jesus' glorious birth. He fulfills them perfectly in Jesus. Every T is crossed and every I is dotted. I think it's so important that I point out there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. 
We cannot understand what God is doing or why he is doing what he is doing. That's where John is. Unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. Also something else to consider. Doubt is not always a sign that man is wrong. It may be a sign that man is thinking and seeking the one true God. Amen? In John's case, his question was not born out of willful unbelief. It appears it was generated by doubt caused by unfulfilled expectations, highly influenced by physical and emotional stress in Herod's dungeon. These prisons were horrible places, church. They're horrible places. So many of our prisons today, they're like country clubs. Some of them. These prisons were horrible places. Prison has suffered in unbearable ways. We can only imagine all that John was going through. I want to stress again, Jesus didn't rebuke John, and neither did he explain himself to John. Jesus reveals himself to John. Even though for John it felt as though God was silent, he didn't understand everything Jesus was doing, or in his case, not doing. God was with John. Jesus' response to John reinforces what John already knows, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. When he first met him in his mother's womb, what did he do? He leaped. He met the coming one for the very first time. He leaped. Elizabeth was filled that moment, the Bible says, with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever felt like this? God, where are you? Do you really exist? Is all of this true? I feel so alone. I'm scared. Are you hearing my prayers? Maybe you have placed expectations on Jesus, expectations that remain unfulfilled. Maybe they have more to do with fulfilling your plan, your dreams, and not his plan and his dreams for you. You're wondering why Jesus didn't come through for you. Because Jesus has a better plan for you. A better plan. A bigger dream. In fact, his dream for you, his plan for you, is perfect. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Man lays out his plan, but God does what? Orders his steps. Because he has a better plan, a better dream. His is perfect, mine is flawed. A flawed mind, a flawed hand maps out my plan. But an infinite, wise, perfect God has already written his dream, his plan that's perfect for me. Isn't that glorious, church? Wow. When you think God is not coming through for you, he is. God is always coming through for you. (laughs) 
He is always coming through for you. He is never not coming through for you or for me. He is always at work, working his perfect plan. Amen? In his perfect way. A plan that was written long before you were even born. And Psalms 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my substance. The psalmist crying out to God, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. That's why the Apostle Paul could write in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. When dreams are shattered, when faith is shaken, when there's no easy way out, God is doing his most important work in you and me. He loves you. He cares deeply for you. He came to reveal himself to you, not to play hide and seek, but to be found by you. He loves being found. He's deepening your faith and trust in him. By God's grace, John must accept the Messiah's plans for for his life, plans that are different than what he envisioned possibly. Expect it. The same is true of us. The center of God's will is not always a neat, clean, pain-free place. It's not always a safe place. Most times it's a dangerous place, but it's the most rewarding place. No amens. That's deep. It's heavy. It flies in the face of this prosperity gospel that's preached in so many places. John must dwell on what he knows to be true in the scripture. What's been revealed to him in Christ. Rather than fixate on his unfulfilled expectations, he must remember who God is and trust him from a dark dungeon. And so it is with you and me, church. I hope you're encouraged in your faith today. When my plans crumble and God takes me away from my dreams and he's done that, church, I had dreams for my life. I must trust in God's infinite wisdom. When my cup of suffering seems too much to bear, I need to rest in his immeasurable love for me. When my life spins out of control, my expectations unfulfilled, I need to remember that God, would you write this on your outline, three things as I prepare to close. I need to remember, we all need to remember that God is completely sovereign. When all hell breaks loose, do you believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's behind the wheel of your life? Do you believe, church? Do you have that deep conviction? When we can't understand what he's doing, 
When we can't see him working for our good, do you have that conviction that God is completely sovereign in control and loving, right loving and loving? The Bible says he loves us with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from his love. Our unfulfilled expectations, our doubts, our questions, our pain, nothing can separate us from his everlasting love. I need to remember, you need to remember, we all need to remember that God is completely sovereign and loving and wise and wise. He knew us before we were. He sees the beginning to the end. Which is the beginning of eternity. Church, I don't think there's one of us here today who has not felt the emotional letdown, pain, and disappointment of an unfulfilled expectation. Not one of us. But no, God is completely sovereign, loving, and wise.